Our scripture reading this morning comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Now concerning food sacrificed to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Anyone who claims to know something does not yet have the necessary knowledge, but anyone who loves God is known by him. Hence, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that no idol in the world really exists, and that there is no God but one. Indeed, even though there, there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as in fact there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, in one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. The word of the Lord. Good morning. I, I don't know if you picked up on that in one of the announcements, but sometimes the church calendar gives us gifts we don't deserve, and that is the case this year with the beginning of Lent, Ash Wednesday on Valentine's Day. <laughs> I personally love nothing more than that um, alignment. Anyway, today we are going to continue to explore our purpose statement as a church. And we're actually going to be doing this for quite a while. At this point, it looks like this series is going to take us through the beginning of the Lenten season, at least the first few weeks of Lent. So we are going to be rehearsing this statement quite a bit in the coming month or so, but we'll, we'll read it, a portion of it again today. Our, our purpose statement begins like this. As a community following the teachings of Jesus... We participate in the restorative work of God. And one way we hope to do that as a community is in caring about each other's journey. It's the community piece of our purpose, caring about each other's journey. We started talking about that last week. We'll continue this week. And you guessed it, we will continue that next week as well. And this is why this series is going to take us so long. What was originally going to be a single message has been expanded into three. But caring about each other's journey. We go on to further flesh that statement out in this way, recognizing that church is not simply a meeting or a routine. We gather as a loving community to participate in a rhythm and develop relationships with Christ followers in the world. We desire to share life with one another in authentic ways that become a living, breathing, local expression of the global historical community of Jesus. Now, a couple of qualifications. Number one, this is not altogether unique. I want to emphasize from the beginning that our purpose statement is not an attempt to differentiate ourselves over and against other churches or show why we have it all figured out. If you have been here for more than about 10 seconds, you know we don't have it all figured out. Um, th this statement is not an attempt to show why we are better than other churches and why people should be a part of our church. Rather, it is simply an attempt to put language to who we are hoping to become and some of the ways we seek to do that. Which brings us to the second clarification that I feel is needed. None of the stuff that we are talking about over the course of these two months is stuff we have achieved 
or goals we have reached. What is more, they aren't goals or concepts we will ever master, I don't think. We, we are always going to be striving to live these realities out. Sometimes we will do that well, maybe, hopefully, maybe. Sometimes we will do it poorly. When we do it poorly, we hope to be honest about it and hope to learn from our mistakes and continue to pursue life in Christ. So all that to say, we, we want to be realistic about this, understanding that we are imperfect people, imperfectly trying to live out an imperfect purpose statement, which maybe that sounds really discouraging, or like we've resigned ourselves to stagnation, which is not the case. We want to actively pursue these things, but we also recognize that it's not about reaching a destination, but it is, in fact, a lifelong journey of discovery, living with Jesus and his family. And that journey with his family, that journey with our brothers and sisters seated around us today, what we talked about last week, that journey with his family will never be without detours, road hazards, speed bumps. If you've been a part of a church, and not necessarily this church, but any local expression of the church, you probably know what I'm talking about. I grew up in the home of a pastor. My folks are actually a part of our congregation now. I'm sure many of you know them. But as a pastor's kid, in addition to um, you know some of the normal PK antics that I was probably guilty of, I also feel like I saw a fairly thorough picture of the messiness of the local church. I sort of feel like that farmer's insurance commercial. We know a thing or two because we've seen a thing or two. Like many of you, I have seen and experienced the ugly, bitter, messy, harsh reality of life in community. I have also seen the beauty on the other side. I'm sure many can relate. One of my prayers for us as a community is that we might not be become disillusioned by the imperfection or the messiness of life and community together, or give in to the temptation to just decide to burn it all down and move on. As we noted last week, the family gathered around Jesus Christ is a gift. I believe it is a gift. It's not an easy gift. It certainly is not a perfect gift, but it is a beautiful gift to be embraced. But I wonder if the only way that we can move toward embracing that gift of the community gathered around Jesus as family is to first recognize that however disappointing this may be, there is no perfect family. There is no perfect family. The New Testament text appointed for today in the lectionary, we just read it for our scripture reading, comes from the book of we, we know as 1 Corinthians, <clears throat> a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church he started in this Mediterranean port city of Corinth. If you read through the book of 1 Corinthians, which, by the way, I recommend, I think that would be a good exercise. If you read through it, you will notice Paul addresses some extremely practical matters throughout this letter. I mean, you will find a 
thoroughly developed uh, theology throughout the letter, but he also gets into the nuts and bolts of living together in community. And some of the practical matters he addresses are, are pretty wild. There's also a great deal of variety in these issues. He moves from addressing something like the food that Christians should eat to issues of human sexuality, issues surrounding marriage and singleness, etc. And then moves on to explicitly religious matters like communion or prophecy or disorder in the midst of a worship gathering. It's sort of like a buffet. There's a little bit for everybody. But in addition to covering a lot of practical ground, dealing with some specific issues that needed to be addressed in this specific community, I think we also find that this letter as a whole provides a reminder that community is messy. It always is. And, and by the way, it's not just the church community. Anytime you get human beings together in a group for an extended period of time, it's going to get messy. And yet, despite all of that, I want to draw our attention to just a couple of statements from Paul, to some of his opening thoughts and then some of his closing thoughts at the end of the letter. So, again, he understands all that is going on in this local church in Corinth. He's prepared to correct it. That's one of the things this letter is about. And still, in the opening verses of the letter, this is what we read. Chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Incredible. I mean, can you imagine receiving this letter and reading those opening lines? And then in the next breath, okay, now let me address the divisions in the community. You're quarreling with one another. Some say, I follow Paul. Others say, I follow Apollos. Still others, I follow Cephas or I follow Christ. You're, you're bickering and fighting and claiming superiority when you should be united as a loving family. And that's just chapter 1. He goes on to address that issue again in chapter 3. But that's just chapter 1. He also addresses the rampant pride that is at work within the community. Sexual immorality, and he goes on in chapter 5, sexual immorality that wasn't even tolerated at the time 
among pagans. He goes on, there's greed. They're suing one another over disputes they couldn't reconcile. There was idolatry. When they gathered for the Lord's Supper, some were overeating, overindulging, even to the point of getting drunk on the wine, while those on the margins didn't even get to share in the meal at all. There was chaos in their use of spiritual gifts. I mean, from beginning to end, what what we discover in this letter, the church in Corinth is a messy bunch. There's sin. There's selfishness. Undoubtedly, that sin and selfishness caused a lot of pain for those in the community. And it's not excused. Paul doesn't sweep any of this under the rug. He's actually going on to offer a rebuke and correction. But remember, Paul addresses them at the beginning of the letter as those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. He says he continually gives thanks to God for the faith they have. And then he goes on this rampage, showing the many ways in which they fail to live up to that. Now, let's turn our attention to the end of this letter. He concludes the letter in this way, right at the end of chapter 15. So this is before his concluding salutations, but chapter 15, verse 58, therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Therefore, my beloved Brothers and sisters, this is after he has walked through all of the many things requiring correction, many failures within the church, all of the mess, all of the conflict, all of the selfishness and sin and pain that that has caused, and still he refers to this messy, fledgling community as his beloved brother's And sisters, the familial tie, what we talked about last week, to him and to one another within the community had not been dissolved because of the nonsense at work in the community. That familial connection had not been dissolved even when the honeymoon phase of the relationship ended. If you've lived with roommates, or if you're married, or if you have children, you probably get this. I have had my fair share of roommate situations throughout my life, most notably 17 roommates at one time in a tiny one-bedroom apartment in Anchorage, Alaska for four months. To be fair, we were always on the road, so the most ever spending the night in that apartment concurrently was nine people. But let me tell you, from experience, nine people in a tiny one-bedroom apartment, that is still far too many human beings in that proximity. Another example, before Nanette and I got married, I went on a three-month road trip around the U.S. Two good friends. We're still surprisingly good friends. But we piled into a 90s periwinkle minivan that we affectionately referred to as the Blue Demon and drove some 15,000 miles around the country. 
Of the three of us, I was not the tallest man involved. I'm a fairly tall individual. So you cramp three six-foot-plus guys into a minivan for three months, proximity of that sort inevitably confronts you with annoyances, differences of opinion, different standards of cleanliness. And David and Matt, if you ever hear this podcast, that is purely hypothetical. <laughs> different standards of cleanliness. You discover, though, the real unmasked version of the person you're with, and what is worse, maybe, they discover the real unmasked version of you. The point in all of this, it is to be expected when people are in close proximity for an extended period of time, eventually the honeymoon phase of the relationship wears off and tension emerges. That's the nature of life together. And I think that honeymoon phenomenon applies to church communities as well. And I think we need to be aware of that. I'm assuming that nobody here is unrealistically optimistic enough to think this, but on the off chance that you are new to the community and are thinking, this seems like a perfect place, I assure you, it is not. Don't get me wrong. I think it's wonderful. I've been pastoring here for 12 years, and I hope to continue for many more. It is a wonderful place filled with wonderful people who are serious and intentional about their discipleship to Jesus. I have grown tremendously because of relationships with you all. But it is far from a perfect community because it is comprised of far from perfect people and pastored by a far from perfect individual. And I think we must understand that going in. And remember it, each time we face disappointment in relationship, we need to be realistic. This is the nature of relationships in community. And if we never grow comfortable with that sort of tension or develop the ability to tolerate annoyances or different standards of cleanliness or if we never grow in our willingness to be as gracious with others as we would hope they would be with us, our relationships won't last long. Unless, of course, we are content to keep one another at arm's length. But I am convinced that the call into Christian community is a call into something more vulnerable, deeper, but as a result, something that is much more difficult. The reality is that we, we need each other. Of course, our, our greatest need is, is Jesus alone. Jesus alone is the source of our hope, life, and salvation. However, we need one another in order to learn how to follow Jesus. Continue talking about that next week. But I think this is one of the unique things about Christian community is that it not only aids in our transformation, but being conformed into the image of Christ, I think, is impossible without one another. In his book, When the Church Was a Family, Joseph, by the way, there's a couple of copies on the resource table out there. If you're interested in this book, take a copy, read it, and, and bring it back so somebody else can read it. But Joseph Hellerman writes this. He said, spiritual formation occurs primarily in the context of community. 
Persons who remain connected with their brothers and sisters in a local church almost invariably grow in self-understanding, and they mature in their ability to relate in healthy ways to God and to their fellow human beings. He goes on, long-term interpersonal relationships are the crucible of genuine progress in the Christian life. People who stay connected to Christian community grow. Think of the disciples for a moment. Overcoming differences to follow Jesus. Small group of 12 guys represents a great deal of variety. They came from different walks of life, different social circles, different occupations. They possessed different ideological frameworks, different ways of understanding and interacting with the world they are a part of. They argue. They jockey for position. Their political opinions weren't cohesive. Here's just one subtle but I think significant example. Last week we looked at one of the stories where Jesus calls, begins calling his disciples. If we jump to Mark chapter 2, we find another one of those stories, Jesus gathering his disciples. In verse 13 we read this. He went out again beside the sea. And all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Seems straightforward enough. We have Levi, also called Matthew, who is a tax collector. He's Jewish, but is, I mean, on some level, collaborating with the Roman Empire and their oppressive taxation system that was um, a heavy burden for the people to bear. He is at the very least, I think, complicit to some degree in that oppression. And additionally, many tax collectors in that day would also skim a little bit off the top for their personal So it's possible that his complicity is even more direct. He may be personally benefiting from that oppressive taxation system. So that's one story. We jump ahead to the next chapter, Mark chapter 3, where we find a list of the disciples. Verse 16, he appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bonerges, and don't ask questions about that pronunciation, that is sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Notice the description we find there in verse 18, Simon the Zealot. Keep that story from Mark chapter 2 in your minds. Simon the Zealot. Zealots were political activists who were so opposed to Roman occupation that they were willing to even resort to violence in order to try to end that occupation. So we have a political activist who, if not violent himself, we aren't told explicitly, but at the very least he was probably okay with violence being done in the name of overthrowing Rome. So we have a violent political activist on one hand. On the other hand, we have the guy colluding 
with Rome in oppressive taxation practices, on the other hand. And they're called into the same family. I mean, let that sink in for a moment. I think it's easy to miss how radical this is. This is sort of like uh, Occupy Wall Street activist and finance bro called into the same community. And yet, abiding in Jesus, they're, div- they're both called to radical life change. But their devotion to Jesus enabled them to overcome those differences and begin to form a loving community. A loving community that was not free of tension, no doubt, but a loving community nonetheless. I think it's difficult for us to realize what Jesus is doing here and continue to insist, well, I can't worship with somebody who is that different from me. I can't worship with somebody who has different political opinions. I can't be in community, genuine, deep community with somebody from a different socioeconomic background or somebody who has a different education level or a fan of my team's rival. I'm not looking at you Chiefs fans. We're just too different. How in the world can we ever have that sort of vulnerable, deep connection? But I think that's part of the point. We are transformed in the context of community. And in my experience, a lot of the deepest transformation in my life has come from people with whom I have significant differences. I want to explore this idea in more detail next week. But in his book, Life Together, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the well-known German pastor and theologian, said this, He who loves his dream of a community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter, even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. If we have our ideals of what community is, and ideally that's people just like me, And if we dream and desire that ideal above all else, we will inevitably destroy the possibility of deep relational connection because proximity and extended periods of time, eventually we are going to discover that even if it looks like we're the same on the surface, we have some significant differences and that tension is going to rise to the surface. But if we can grow in our ability to love the community itself with all of its quirkiness and diversity, we begin to open ourselves to the possibility of creating genuine community. This is how one pastor, Rich Velotis, said, there is no ideal community. There is no ideal community. Every community carries with it tensions disagreements, idiosyncrasies, and challenging personalities. You're looking at one of those challenging personalities right now. Every community, he says. I think that's true, and that includes this one. We want to be realistic about that, but that leads to a question that I think we are faced with. Can we love the actual 
body, not just in theory, not the idea of community, but the actual people seated around us right now. Can we grow in a long-term love for one another when they are close up? When flaws that remained concealed for a long time, when those become evident, when the excitement of the honeymoon phase of the relationship ends and we find ourselves doing the dishes, folding the laundry, sweeping the floors. Even when we fail to live up to the expectations or ideals, when we fail to live up to our own potential, can we continue to love? Can we continue to invest? Can we continue to serve? I want to leave us with those questions. We're going to return to this next week and, and try to wrap up this part of the series. But for now, I'd invite you to stand. We're going to gather around this table, which I think is probably the most appropriate way to conclude. Um, we recognize that in a room, even as small as the one we're in, there are a great deal of differences in personalities, opinions, we come from different backgrounds, different situations. We acknowledge all of those differences, but we are united around this table. I think this is one of the beautiful things about concluding each of our services in this manner. It is a reminder every week that we have been united around Jesus Christ. That union around Jesus Christ doesn't eliminate tension. But for a moment, we lay that aside. We come and we share this meal at this table, the body and blood of our Lord with our brothers and sisters, and we are reminded of that familial connection. So I invite you to take a moment. We'll just pause and, and be quiet for a moment and, and ask God's Spirit to speak to us to challenge us, and then we'll join together with our brothers and sisters to share in this meal. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the gift of this family, this small local expression of your global family. We pray that you would give us the courage and strength to embrace one another as brothers and sisters. going into this with eyes wide open, being realistic, understanding that this is never going to be perfect. And yet we will continue to strive to live together in unity, to build the bond of peace. And so as an expression of that desire, we gather around this table that you have invited us to.
We pray that as we partake in this meal, that you would nourish our spirits, that you would draw us closer to you, but also that you would draw us closer to one another. Open our eyes to the gift of your family. Now, by way of invitation, I'll invite you to say a prayer with me. We're going to make two lines down these center aisles. When you get to the front, um, somebody will be here to speak over you, you the words, the, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. You can take the elements on your own, head back to your seat. But I'd invite you to join me in this prayer. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. And where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, Grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. And it is in dying to self that we are born to eternal life. Amen. Would you join us?